Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Big news out of Syria in the ongoing tensions between Turkey and the Kurdish forces there. Vice President Mike Pence announced that Turkey will pause its military operation there for five days to allow for the Kurds to withdraw from the area. While President Trump called this a victory, critics still say Turkey got everything they wanted and the whole ordeal has diminished the standing of the U.S. in the area. For more on the story, we spoke to Dave Lawler. He's the world editor at Axios to talk about the ceasefire. So essentially what Pence is saying is that this Turkish offensive is over. With U.S. overseeing an operation, the Kurdish forces along the border between Syria and Turkey will pull back. The Turks will stop their offensive. And essentially you will have this buffer zone that Turkey's been calling for created along the border with U.S. help. So essentially it's Turkey getting what they've demanded from the beginning, which is this 30 kilometer zone along the border. But it's the Kurds, instead of fighting Turkey for that land, pulling back. Now, we haven't seen a statement from them that they're embracing this deal. And so I wouldn't say it's a done deal yet, but that's the basics of what Pence laid out today from Turkey. Turkey from the beginning said that they are not going to negotiate with any Kurdish forces. They view them as a terrorist force. So this was a deal straight up between Turkey and the vice president, right? Exactly. And Turkey has gotten what they've asked for from the beginning, basically, which is they said, we have these Kurdish forces along our border. We consider them to be elements of a terrorist group. And this is a security problem for us. The U.S. said, don't invade. They invaded and now the U.S. is intervening to try and negotiate a ceasefire, essentially on Turkey's terms, saying Turkey will get what they demanded from the beginning if they don't continue to push this offensive further into Syria. The president spoke to reporters and he said this is a great victory, it's a great day for civilization. Can we call this a victory? As you've been saying, even Turkey is getting everything they want. And I guess we're getting what we want because the president wants to get out of the area. But is this a victory of any sort? Right. So President Trump has been seeing for a week now headlines that say Turkey is killing a U.S. ally, the Kurds. ISIS prisoners are in danger of being released and getting on the loose. And this is an offensive by Turkey that by de facto strengthens U.S. adversaries in Russia, Syria, and Iran, right? So he's been seeing a lot of bad headlines around this Turkish offensive. He's saying, look, we're gonna end the offensive now. It's a victory because the killing will stop. It's not a victory in the sense that, as you say, Turkey got everything they wanted. The US is still off the playing field. Now, maybe Trump views that as a victory. We're not in the way in Syria anymore. But obviously, the more conventional way to stop this fighting from happening would be to have kept the US presence in Syria anyways that was preventing this Turkish offensive in the first place. Right. I mean, this all goes back to that. The president and the Pentagon said, hey, we never gave a green light for Turkey to begin this offensive. But really, when the president pulled those troops out of there, the only kind of stabilizing force there that was the green light. And I don't know what the conversation was between the president and Erdogan was when they talked on the phone, but them pulling out the troops really was that green light, whether they like to think so or not. 
according to our reporting, Trump said to Erdogan, if you do this, you will be responsible for whatever happens next. This is on you if we pull out. And Erdogan said, fine, basically. This is something he's been threatening to do for a long time. The only thing that was preventing him from doing it was, as you say, the presence of U.S. troops along the border. The U.S. pulled out. Now, Trump seems to be arguing that Turkey was going to do this anyways, even if the U.S. troops were there and so better to get them out of harm's way. I don't think anybody really believes that was the case. As, right. as we saw over the last two years, the fact that U.S. troops were there, Turkey did not want to directly take on U.S. troops along the border. That would be a disaster for them. So really, as you say, pulling the troops out was what kicked this off. And now Trump is saying, I'm the one to end it today. We'll see if that's the case. Reports say that Erdogan told reporters that he can't keep up with all the different messages coming from the president. He says, when we look at his Twitter posts, we can no longer follow them. We can't keep track. We also heard that on the day that the Turkish offensive started, President Trump sent Erdogan a letter saying, hey, don't be a fool. The world is going to look at you like a devil. It was a very surreal letter. And at the end, he says, hey, I'll call you later. But what do we make of the position that Turkey is in with kind of this mixed messaging? So there's a lot going on there. Obviously, U.S. policy for the last 10 months or so has been that we were going to work with Turkey to help ease their security concerns along the border. So that was the working level conversations, not between Trump and Erdogan, but at the lower level between envoys, between diplomats, between the militaries. This was something that seemed to be working and it was a plan that was in place. Then Erdogan gets on the phone with Trump himself and he's basically able to change U.S. policy over the course of that conversation. Trump then apparently realizes that there's going to be significant blowback on his end. He sends the letter to Erdogan threatening that there will be repercussions for taking this step that I think it was quite clear to Trump was going to happen in the first place. And then you have the U.S. Congress now saying, we don't really care about this ceasefire. We're still going to push ahead with sanctions. So there are a lot of messages coming from Washington. Erdogan is partially to blame for that because he skipped right to the top in you know negotiating directly with Trump. He knew that there wasn't widespread support for this across the U.S. government, but he knew he could get Trump to play ball, essentially. You have one message coming from Turkey, more or less, from Erdogan, and you have several messages coming from Washington. I'm not surprised that he's a little bit confused. Dave Lawler, World News Editor at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. An interesting story out of the food industry they're looking into turning garbage into profits, looking to attract customers who say they want their companies to waste less and lessen their environmental impacts. Companies are developing new products from things like cocoa husks, spent brewing grain, and even making synthetic leather from the leaves of pineapple plants. For more on the story, we spoke to Heather Haddon. She's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. This is waste created typically through the food process. So one of the examples there is the cacao plant, which is what produces cocoa for chocolate. Something like 70% of that plant after the cocoa bean, which is inside, is harvested, the rest of it is thrown out. So it is actually a fruit. So all the fruit pulp is thrown out, the skin, the husk is all discarded. And big chocolate producers for a long time have been looking at all this material that has just been wasted and thrown out and been wondering, what could we do with this? So Mondelez, one of the big chocolate producers that make Oreo cookies and lots of other products like that, have just invented a new product called Kapow, which takes this cacao fruit and blends it with nuts and seeds. And they're starting to sell that in LA just as an experiment. And there's no guarantee for this stuff. So they're starting to experiment on a small level to see if 
people like it or not and might expand from there. So there's a few incentives. We have this like sustainability cachet if we do these things, but it's also just there's more and more focus on waste and what is done with waste and potential penalties for just throwing out all this waste. So there is an incentive on the economic end in addition to inventing some cool new stuff. Yeah, the companies do want to attract the customers also who want to spend their money on companies that waste less and lessen their environmental impact. One of the things that was interesting is fabrics that are being made from food waste. Talk about that. So this is also, again, in its infancy, but there are some big names that are interested in this. A lot of European designers that are taking things like apple peels and other just discards and trying to use that to spin new types of sustainable fabrics because everything we know is actually cotton is a really environmentally destructive fabric to use. It just, it takes a lot of resources to produce cotton and it's not very sustainable. So there is, again, an interest to try to market these products as more sustainable to, you know, eventually if these uh, supply chains grew big enough, I mean, there could be a cost beneficiary element to it as well. And just getting back to the beer element again, when I was talking to Anheuser-Busch InBev, I mean, they're giving this spent grain away to this startup to try to make these new products. I think they were making flour out of some of the spent grain because not like they're doing much with it anyway. I mean, they're getting like pennies per pound for it or something like that. So again, there could be a cost benefit for these companies as well to try to experiment with this. Just to add on to the whole notion about creating new fabrics and things, you were talking about how they're working with apple peels and cores and pulp from apple juicing factories, and they're making things like synthetic leather out of these. I think the person who created this one made from apples, they discovered it by accident. They were trying to produce a glue from the fruit waste, and then they made this uh, kind of faux leather by accident. And the same thing with pineapples. This is another company. They're making an alternative leather fabric called Pinatex, and uh, they use uh, the leaves of the pineapple plants right there. So just the ingenuity to repurpose some of these things, it never knew you could get something like a synthetic leather out of these types of things. So definitely a lot of places for these companies to explore. Yeah, no, it's really creative. I mean, there is, again, this incentive both from a cost perspective, but also just there is a halo to these products, particularly something like leather, where... It's a pretty controversial product, and that's been true for a long time for people to wear just because, you know, it's made out of animal skin. If you can use something like apple peels, there's a halo around that. Heather Haddon, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. This past week, we also had another Democratic debate out of Otterbein University in Ohio. Kicking off the entire debate were questions about impeachment And it led to former Vice President Joe Biden defending his and his son's actions with regard to Ukraine. Senator Elizabeth Warren came into the debate as a frontrunner and she had to defend herself from all sides and struggled to answer how she would pay for her Medicare for All plan. And of course, Senator Bernie Sanders had to answer questions about his health and whether he can keep going in the race. For a complete breakdown of what happened, we spoke to Amy Parnes. She's a senior political correspondent at The Hill. I think he came out very strong. Uh, this was one of the things that he had to answer. It was sort of looming large over his campaign in recent weeks um, since the impeachment inquiry. Um, and so I, I think he had to kind of appear to be strong, but it's something that, you know, he is spending a lot of time talking about right now. You saw his son out there today talking to ABC about it. Now he's spending time doing it. He kind of has to appear very strong on this, though. And 
Um, But, you know, I I do think that in many ways the vice president didn't really have a great performance overall because I think he wasn't sort of at the center of things anymore. And that is a dynamic that changed since the last debate. One uh, quick aside, uh, you mentioned Hunter Biden coming forward and talking uh, in that interview with ABC News. Uh, You know, they asked him a range of questions. I think one of the most pertinent questions was, um, you know, what qualifications did you have for being on this board of Burisma? And he says, well, I think I had just as many qualifications as anybody else on that board. (laughs) So how do you think Hunter Biden's response was to this whole controversy? Well, it's definitely giving Republicans an opening today. I was receiving lots of email from people in rapid response and the um, GOP and the White the White House um, and Trump's campaign. Um, they, it's giving them a little bit of an opening to sort of say, okay, he, um, you know, he is sort of admitting that he kind of used his father's name to get to where he was, and so it's something that they're going to keep pushing the Biden campaign about. And, and and this is sort of what the Biden campaign doesn't want. It, it's not where it wants to be. It does not want to be playing defense on an issue like this. Back to the debate. Uh, everybody had signaled that Senator Elizabeth Warren was the new front runner coming into this. She had started polling better. I felt like almost all the questions were geared with a Warren angle, you know, please comment on uh, this plan. Please, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren has said this. Do you think this is the right approach also? Uh, Most notably, when they started talking about the economy and then taxes and then Medicare for all, uh, I felt like Warren stumbled a little bit. She struggled on how to explain whether middle class people would pay more in taxes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that um, that Vice President Biden tried to push her on, uh, particularly on Medicare for All. It's something we saw in the last debate as well. He was sort of, you know, trying to poke holes in the fact that she doesn't know how she would pay for it. She's still been very light on on that. And I think that is something that they'll continue to push her about and she'll continue to have to find a better response in what she has been saying. I want to play a short clip of Senator Bernie Sanders saying that taxes will go up and then uh, just kind of, I mean, I think that was one of the things that put Warren on the defense even more because their plans are so similar. Here's Bernie, uh, here's Bernie Sanders. At the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people will save money on their health care bills. But I do think it is appropriate to acknowledge that taxes will go up. They're going to go up significantly for the wealthy. And for virtually everybody, the tax increase they pay will be substantially less, substantially less than what they were paying for premiums and out-of-pocket expenses. This is one of the issues for Democrats that's really important. And really, there's a lot of similarities on, uh, uh, with the candidates across the board. I think this is one of the issues where they differ a lot, only in how to pay for these things and how to approach it. Um, Bernie Sanders, he said, hey, taxes are going to go up. Elizabeth Warren didn't really want to say that that was going to happen for the middle class. Instead, she said, I'm not going to sign a bill bill that will increase taxes on the middle class. Right. She's very she's being very careful about how she words this. And it's intentional, obviously. I think she's been trying to make inroads lately, especially with moderate voters and black voters. Uh, These are two camps that she hasn't really done very well with. He is beginning to starting to see some traction, and I think she needs to be careful. There's still this perception that she cannot 
um, appeal to moderate voters. And this is sort of an uphill climb for her. And it's sort of why she has to carefully watch what she is saying and how she says it. Mayor Pete Buttigieg had a pretty decent performance. He clashed with Beto O'Rourke on guns as Beto was struggling to say exactly how he would be confiscating guns from Americans. He also had a good exchange with Representative Tulsi Gabbard on foreign policy and Syria. Here's a little clip of Pete Buttigieg on that front. Well, respectfully, Congresswoman, I think that is dead wrong. The slaughter going on in Syria is not a consequence of American presence. It's a consequence of a withdrawal and a betrayal by this president of American allies and American values. When we think our only choices are between endless war or total isolation, the consequence is the disappearance of U.S. leadership from the world stage, and that makes this entire world a more dangerous place. Did Pete Buttigieg have this breakout moment that he needed during this debate? I think we definitely saw a new side of him. You know, we in, in past debates, we saw that he is sort of well-versed on policy issues and he has a pretty good presence on the stage. But tonight, I think we saw almost a, a stronger, kind of tougher Pete Buttigieg. And that is sort of you know, it kind of dovetails with what the electorate wants right now. They want to see if who has the electability factor and who can be tough enough to take on Trump. That is kind of the second factor that voters are looking for. And I think a lot of people sort of, you know, they never saw the side that we saw tonight. And, and he was trying to kind of prove that he can take on Trump, that he not only has the policy chops and ideas, but that he does have the toughness uh, to go after uh, the, uh, his fellow candidates um, on, on stage and competitors on stage. You just said, it, I think it was the perfect segue. Who can be tough enough or healthy enough to take on Donald Trump? We all know that Senator Sanders just came off of having a heart attack. This is his first event since that. He's been laying low. That was obviously a question that came up. Here's that quick interaction with Bernie Sanders saying he's all right. Senator Sanders, I want to start with you. I want to start. We're we're moving on, Senator. I'm I'm sorry. I'm feeling great, but I would like to respond to that. I I want to start by saying... There, there was definitely flashes of classic Bernie. He got very excited talking about health care, very excited about, uh, you know, the, his revolution that he wants to uh, accomplish. Uh, by all accounts, it seems like he's doing all right. Yeah, I mean, he definitely had a very, I, I think the big question around Bernie Sanders uh, coming into tonight was, can he sort of show that he, you know, wasn't down, um, down and out about a week ago and didn't have a heart attack? And he kind of proved that he could. Even the last debate performance, he was a little scratchy at a um, kind of a, I don't know if it was a sore throat or something, but it seemed like he had a cold. He didn't have a great performance. I thought tonight he had a really strong performance and showed that he um, came back with a vengeance. And he kind of hinted and alluded to the fact that he's going to have a big um, crowd in New York, and um, I, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez right. is apparently going to endorse him there, and so that will give his campaign some momentum as well going forward. Amy Parnes, Senior Political Correspondent at The Hill, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.